Good morning, Life Church Bath. It is such a joy to be here with you this morning. We so miss your faces, so miss connecting with you. And um, what I started doing is I, before I go out, I asked the Father if I could just bump into somebody. And um, the other day I bumped into three people at Sainsbury's, so that was a good day for me. But I'm super grateful that we still get to connect in these unique, unique circumstances and um, I celebrate it as well. So this morning, um, as being a typical woman, I've got a lot on my heart that I have to share. So we're going to just jump into the Word of God. And then right at the end, I um, would love to pray for all of you because I feel like I would love to release something over you this morning. But let's jump into the Word. We're going to get into Acts 8. But before we go there, I want us to just get a little bit of context as to what's been happening because it's always good. So in Acts 2, there's been this beautiful outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The church is growing at a rapid rate. They've all been in Jerusalem in this holy huddle waiting for this outpouring to come as Jesus commanded them to do. And, um, and then suddenly persecution comes against them. And you know, which is f what's funny is what the enemy thinks is a win for him, God always uses for his glory. I mean, look at the crucifixion and how that worked out for the enemy. So there's this persecution that comes from a human perspective and they have may, may have been thinking this is really bad for believers, this is really bad for church. And to some extent we can relate to that, you know, when lockdown happened, the thought process might have been this is going to be really bad for the church and for believers, you know, we, we can't meet, we can't get into our buildings, what is going to happen? So this was a really low point for them. But as you keep reading through Acts, you will discover that what the enemy thinks is a high point for him, God is using that very persecution to release his goodness over the earth. So in this moment, believers have been scattered. They think it's all going wrong, but actually it's the first kernel of the world being impacted by the message of God because they've been pushed out of Jerusalem and into the nations. And I believe to a certain extent, we've been pushed out of our buildings and into our homes and communities. So we're going to pick up in Acts 8 verses 4 to 25. I'm reading from the NIV. It's quite a long portion of scripture, but I feel like it's really weighty and so we need to get through it all. So if you can bear with me. So it's starting in verse 4. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria. Now Samaria is the arch enemy of the Jewish people. And he told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs that he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims. And many who had been paralyzed and lamed were healed. And there was great joy in the city. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. But now the people believe Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles that Philip performed. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Then Peter and John laid their hands upon the believers and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given when the apostles laid their hands on the people, he offered them money to buy the power, this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed. So when I lay hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, may your money be destroyed with you for, your, for you thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to God. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts for I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and held captive by sin. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon explained, that these terrible things you have said won't happen to me. After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem and they stopped in many Samaritan villages on the way to preach the good news. You know, I love this chapter because this chapter is a chapter of comparisons. If we dig a little bit deeper into this chapter, we find so much treasure because the Holy Spirit is trying to display to us what kind of spirit he is. And so we're gonna look at four comparisons in this passage. And the first one I'd like to draw your attention to is the issue of amazement. We're told that Simon had amazed the crowds with his miracles, his magic, his sorcery, and he had held the people captive at some level to him because they, had, they were saying things like, who is this guy? Surely it's the great power of God because they were amazed by what he did. Now, I wanna tell you something that if your goosebumps are the highlight of your Christianity, then you're settling for far too little. And I feel like there's been a culture that has come into the church where we've gotten drawn into a culture of amazement rather than understanding that God is inviting us into a culture of encounter. And there's a subtle difference between the two. Now, before I go on, I'd like to clarify something. I love the goosebump moments. I love the moments in the spirit where you feel so overwhelmed by the presence of God, where you feel the weightiness of his love on you. I love those moments where my goosebumps are having goosebumps, but those moments are signposts to so much more. And if we settle for those moments, like that was the aim of the moment, we're settling for far too little. Because when we feel the presence of God, there is an encounter that he's inviting us into not just a moment where we can feel gooey and then go home and do the same thing that we were doing the day before. Because here's the issue, a culture of amazement has no power for transformation, but a culture of encounter leaves us feeling so transformed that everything about our life changes. Simon was leading the people into a culture of amazement, but what he did had no power to change them, which is why we see that when the people saw what Philip did, they came into freedom, they came into joy. Miracles were happening and people were being set free. Why? Because when we come into an encounter with God, there's a power present for so much more than just our amazement, but for transformation so that we're left restored, we're left whole, we're left empowered and we're left equipped to change the world. And so they've been following Simon for years, amazed, it had been so wonderful. And then Philip comes and in one instant, everything changes in the city. Now in Romans, it tells us that the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace and joy in his spirit. In a culture of encounter, there's a peace that settles on us that even the most anxious situation cannot shake us. 
because it's a peace that comes from God that passes understanding, which means it's stubborn and it's unshakable because it's not about what's going on in the world around us because that would be a peace that comes with understanding, but it's a peace that goes way beyond any reasonable thinker. It's the sort of peace that makes people annoyed because they're like, why are you so chilled right now? Because that's the sort of peace that an encounter with the Holy Spirit brings into our lives. An encounter culture brings so much joy that even in the midst of suffering, we are able to be the happiest people on the earth. And listen, joy is deeper than happiness. We've just done a whole month on joy, so we know that. We know that joy is happiness plus, plus, plus which means it changes the way our faces look, right? We can't walk around looking like we've been baptized in lemon juice. It means that joy impacts the way we live. We get to be the most joyful people on the planet. That's what it means to come into an encounter with God. An encounter culture, or let me replace that word encounter with kingdom culture. A kingdom culture means we don't have to preach about what's right and wrong. We don't need to start talking about morality or pulling people up on their sin because a kingdom culture is righteousness in the spirit. He is a different kind of spirit to what religion would teach us because when we, came, when we come into an encounter with him, he transforms us from the inside. So we don't have to be the morality police on the planet, but instead we have a deposit of the favor of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit teaches people righteousness. That's what an encounter culture does. It has the power to transform when amazement doesn't. So I want to tell you, if your, your goosebumps are wonderful, but don't settle for them. They're wonderful and they're beautiful and God has given, made us to physically experience him. But don't just stop there. Step into an encounter that will transform you. You know, we've been in a season where we've just given this, been given this beautiful opportunity to pursue intimacy with the Father. That's what an encounter brings. It brings transformation so that when we come out of this, we will be transformed as a people. The problem with amazement culture is we become so enamored with the goosebumps and we start thinking that the goosebumps are proof of, proof of his presence rather than recognizing that the Bible says he's always with us. He will never leave or forsake us. Just a very practical example of this. Have you ever been in a situation where you're driving somewhere and you're trying to find a location or an address? You're looking for the road sign and you just can't find it. You think you're on the right path, but you keep looking for the road name and the signpost just isn't there. And then after a while, you realize you were on the right road all along. Has anyone ever experienced that? Thanks, Dom, he has, he's nodding for me. The realization comes that you've been on the right track all along. You see, the signpost isn't proof as to whether the road exists or not. It's a signpost. We don't want to despise the signpost. It's a beautiful and it's a gift from God. And it allows us to take stock of what he's doing in the moment. But neither do we want to put so much emphasis on the signpost that we believe the road doesn't exist when the signpost isn't there. The road exists. His presence is with you and his spirit is a promise to every single believer. So let's not stop at a culture of amazement. Let's make sure we're pursuing a culture of encounter, a culture of the kingdom. 
The second comparison that I'd love to highlight is that Simon puts himself in the center of the supernatural. And it's quite funny reading about him. I mean, he does all these magic arts and then he boasts about himself being someone great and he draws everyone's attention. It's quite something. He really had people captivated to him for a long period of time. But then you see the comparison with Philip's life, Philip's language, Philip's ministry. It's a completely different thing. He performs signs and wonders, he preaches the gospel, and they all pay attention to what he said. Because even though what Philip did far outweighed what Simon had been doing, the, Philip, the focus of Philip's ministry is that he was, to, he was pointing to Jesus. So when people were coming to him, he was drawing them to Jesus. And when the people saw what he did, he was speaking of Jesus. Simon put himself in the center of the story. Philip understood that he was joining God's story. It's a completely different approach. Our responsibility is to point people to the person of Jesus. So in our meetings, in our jobs, in our homes, in our lives, that is what we're put on the planet to do, to come and show people who Jesus is. So what I'm speaking about here isn't that Simon got it wrong because he was playing a big. No, no, no. Simon got it wrong because he thought he was the source of his greatness. That was the problem. Whereas Philip wasn't playing it small, he came and he impacted an entire city, but all the while while pointing to the one who was the source of his greatness. Simon put himself in the center of his story. Who's in the center of your story? The third comparison is that Simon believed that the Holy Spirit could be bought, but this is a different kind of fire and he's not for sale. And you know, we can be super condescending. I mean, we can read this portion of scripture and we can shake our heads and say, well, silly Simon, of course you can't buy the Holy Spirit. He's not for sale. How ridiculous. But then we get annoyed when the newcomer comes into church and gets their miracle before we get ours. As, because we put our time in as if our time is currency with which he can be bought. Or we get frustrated with a brand new Christian who, who, and who's still living in all kinds of sin. And look, I'm not advocating sin because if you're a Christian, you've got a brand new nature and it's more natural for you not to sin than to sin. So if you are sinning, just stop it. But what I'm saying is, is that the new Christian comes in, they're still dealing with stuff in their past. And we get annoyed when the prophet who's visiting calls them out and gives them a phenomenal prophetic word. And you've been in church for 20 years and you pray and you fast every week and God didn't pick you out. Your morality, your prayer and your fasting is not a currency with which he may be bought. He is not for sale, which means he will not be controlled by the things that you bring to the table. He is for free. Notice he's not cheap, but he is for free. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit is incredibly costly but it's just that Jesus did all the pain. I love the verses in the Gospels where Mary goes to Jesus in the middle of a male-only section party because that's how all parties were in those days, segregated between men and women. And we're told that she goes to Jesus and they would have been reclining at the table, so she would have had to climb over several people to get to him. But she goes to him and we're told that she breaks an alabaster jar 
and she pours over an ointment, which is very expensive, over Jesus' feet. And she lets her hair down, which would have been so offensive in that day because it's an act of a woman towards her husband in the privacy of their bedroom. It was an act of devotion that said, I belong to you. But she doesn't care who's watching. She breaks the jar, she pours out the ointment, she lets her hair down as an act of devotion. devotion. And we, we, you know, we were told that people in the room were saying, what a waste, what a waste in their religious thinking. They were counting up how much the money of the ointment could have been sold for. And they even sugarcoated it by saying they could have given it to the poor, as if they would. It's an incredible story, a moment of costly devotion. It's a beautiful story in and of itself. But the reason I love the story is because it's a reflection of a story that will come a few chapters later in the Gospels, where Jesus is sitting at a table with his disciples and he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he takes the wine and he pours it out. He breaks what is costly. This is my body given for you. And he pours out what is costly. This is my blood poured out for you. In that moment, he breaks and he pours out, which is exceptionally costly in order that you and I may come to a place of freedom freely. The pouring out of his spirit is not for sale. It comes freely, but it's not cheap. He was broken and he was poured out that you and I could come into an encounter but I will tell you again, he's not for sale. Your morality won't buy him. Your time won't buy him. The amount of money you've given to the church won't buy him. He is not for sale. He is a spirit that has been poured out on all flesh. And Simon didn't understand this, but he is a God that comes to meet with his people freely. And he's coming in a new wave to meet with his people. The last comparison, and this one isn't so much in and of itself, all found in this portion of scripture. You see, the book of Acts is written by the author Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. So actually the two books are a two-part volume, and they would have usually been read in one gathering, the book of Luke, the book of Acts. And so in the book of Luke, which I'm quickly going to refer to, there's a story in Luke 9. And, you know, you've just got to laugh at the disciples. They're just such a hilarious bunch of guys. They, they're arguing in verse 46 as to who's the greatest among them. Isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't reprimand them for arguing about who's the most awesome? You know why? Because Jesus realized that by spending time with him, they had come into a revelation of what their significance was. It's the same with us. The more and more time we spend um, chasing the heart of the Father, spending time in intimacy with Jesus, the more we realize what our identity in, in him is. The thing is, we just don't have to argue about it. Then we go on a little bit further, and Jesus is coming to the time where he has to go to Jerusalem. He realizes the time is coming for him to ascend. And so he sends a couple of the disciples into a Samaritan village to asking them to prepare the way for him. And they refuse him. And so the disciples are angry and they go back to Jesus and they say, Jesus, what shall we do? Shall we pour, call down fire from heaven as judgment on the city? And Jesus then reprimands them for that. You see, 
I think it's so funny that the disciples would say, let's pour down fire. You know, really, if you're going to ask Jesus a question, you always have to be willing for him to answer either way. It's a bit of a dumb question, but Jesus does reprimand them for it. You see, in Luke, the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was about. So they see the undeserving and they say to Jesus, shall we call down a fire of judgment on the undeserving, the immoral, the dirty? What would you like us to do, Jesus? Surely your fire is one of judgment. But then they understand who Jesus is when they see the cross, when they see the resurrection, when they experience his commissioning of them everything in their religious mindset gets transformed. So when we catch up with them in Acts 8, again, they're in Samaria. Again, the context is Samaritan village. Again, the people are undeserving because the reality is all of us are undeserving. But isn't it beautiful? The same apostles who wanted to call down fire in judgment arrive in Acts 8 to call down a very different kind of fire in the person of the Holy Spirit as they lay hands on the same undeserving people that maybe just a few years ago they'd want to annihilate. But now they're laying hands on them and they're asking for the Spirit of God to fall on them in kindness and mercy and goodness. You see, the Holy Spirit is a very different kind of fire to that which religion would tell us is coming from God. And this is what breaks my heart because in many contexts, the church is misrepresenting the heart of the Father. As we hold up placards of judgment in different places, as if morality is the issue with God, rather than bringing people unto himself. As if the gospel is about making bad people good, rather than making dead people come alive. As if Jesus wants you to be a cleaner version of yourself rather than transforming everything about you. Because that's what an encounter culture does. It transforms everything about you. God is not interested in your morality so he can tick boxes. He's interested in making you whole. It's a completely different kind of gospel. But when we hold our placards in the world telling people what we don't believe and what we judge about their lives, rather than willing to do the hard journey of walking with people into wholeness, of taking up the cross upon ourselves in our own communities, of being a people who don't just simply talk about abortion but are willing to adopt, of being a people who don't just simply say things like unity is a celebration about, of diversity, but we fully embrace those who think differently to us or look different to us. It's a completely different kind of gospel that we represent when we hold up a placard than when we ask the Spirit of God to fall. It's a different kind of fire that's not simply limited to our goosebumps. It's a fire that is not about our platform. It's a fire that is not for sale and it's a fire that is astonishing in mercy. And in closing, I'd just like to draw your attention to verses 14 to 17 because up until this point, Philip had come and the whole city had been changed. People were healed. People had been baptized. People were delivered. But word gets to Jerusalem and they send Peter and John because they realize that these people need to be baptized with the fire of the Holy Spirit. And so they come and they lay hands on them and they get baptized in the Spirit. 
And church, I really believe there's something significant in this because we've been talking a lot about a new thing, a new wave, a new era. And I believe that there is a new wave, an outpouring of the fire of his Holy Spirit that is coming to believers. And I think it's going to look different because it's going to look like righteousness, that his justice is going to begin to reign. And we're going to talk about justice because I'm so passionate about the subject. We're spending the whole month of August speaking about it. So I'm not going to spend long because it's a whole nother preach. But I really believe when his righteousness is established, we then see an unshakable peace come and an, a, a joy that is contagious, that believers unbelievers become so attracted to us because of what we are and what we stand for. And I, I really believe that for, for, for many, many, many years, for throughout history, people have been longing for the church to stand for something. And we're coming into an era where that is, that is about to happen. And people are going to want to come through our doors because there's going to be no compromise, no judgment, and an uprising of radical love and mercy that is going to flow from the church into the communities. And so this morning, before we leave, I'd love just to release an outpouring of the fire of his Holy Spirit upon us. So if you're in your living rooms, just extend your hands to receive something because there's something weighty that is about to come. And I also believe that as we see this established, his righteousness, peace and joy, signs and wonders, the supernatural is going to come because we're going to be entrusted with that. You know, signs and wonders make people stop and wonder who's behind it. And then we get to introduce them to the person of Jesus. Because the bride doesn't only have to be beautiful to the bridegroom, it has to be beautiful to the world as well. Otherwise, why would they want what we have? So church, are you ready? Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is truth. Holy Spirit, we just welcome you to come and baptize us with a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit, of your fire that is going to come and transform us, that we're going to step into righteousness, peace and joy. I just thank you that we can be so expectant for a shift and a change to happen within us, within our communities, that people are going to be so attracted to who you are. Father, I pray for every single person now that they will tangibly experience your Holy Spirit wherever they are. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, it has been so wonderful being here with you this morning. I look forward to seeing you in August, but have a great week. Bye for now.